All right, well, let's open to Colossians 1 again this morning. Colossians chapter 1. I had originally planned to move into the second chapter of Colossians this morning, um, but I just really sensed the Lord pressing me this week to pause for a moment as we are celebrating the Lord's Supper together uh, this morning. I, I really believed it would enrich our souls to briefly reflect on the riches that we have seen in chapter 1. For me, it has felt like we've been on a mountaintop uh, in chapter 1, and and I'm not ready to come down from that. (laughs) I just, uh, just seeing the, the glories of Christ and therefore by, through our union with him by faith, Uh, the incredible riches that belong to us uh, who know the Lord. Um, So we're going to stay on that mountaintop a little bit longer uh, this morning as we uh, prepare our hearts to partake of the Lord's table together. So the big idea this morning is uh, simply this, that in Christ, God rescues us and secures our eternal relationship with him a life overflowing with spiritual riches. That's what we've been seeing here in chapter one, that that we who know the Lord, we know the Lord because God took the initiative to break into our world of darkness. It wasn't because we woke up smarter one day than we were the day before. It was because the Holy Spirit of God was at work within us, doing as Jesus had promised, convicting us of sin and righteousness and coming judgment and in opening our spiritual eyes to the reality of our lost condition. It is a true statement that before we can get saved, we must get lost. Um, in, in the sense that if we don't understand our lostness before God without Christ, then there really is not a whole lot of reason to be running to him with empty-handed faith to receive all that God promises to those who turn to Christ. And so let's just meditate uh, on the second half of chapter one this morning on three spiritual riches that flow out of this eternal relationship that God has secured for us in Christ. Number one, God has qualified us to be members of a spiritual kingdom, the kingdom of his beloved son. Now, if you look back with me to verse 11, Colossians 1 and verse 11, uh, Paul is longing, after after he gives thanks to God and, and tells them how he's praying for them, he says, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father. That's what I want us to do this morning in preparation for our time around the Lord's table is to give thanks to the Father for rescuing us, for delivering us from our sin and the penalties that came along with that uh, and giving us new life in Christ. 
And notice in verse 13 that he, that is God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And if you go back then to verse 12 again, it is the father who has qualified you, Paul says, to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. That's the first spiritual truth. I want you to just think about this morning so that you are overflowing in thanksgiving to God. That it is God who took the initiative to break into your life, to break into your darkness with the light of the gospel. It is God who has broken the chains that, that were fastened onto you, the chains of sin and the bondage of the devil. It is God who has freed you He has delivered us, it says in verse 14, from the domain of darkness, from the spiritual domain of darkness. We have been delivered. We have been set free. And more than that, though, we have then not only been delivered from a spiritual kingdom, but we have been transferred into an infinitely superior and more blessed spiritual kingdom. It is the kingdom of his beloved Son or the kingdom of the Son of His love. God delivered us out of a kingdom of slavery under the tyranny of a hateful master, the devil. And He has transferred us into the freedom of the kingdom of the Son of His love. What an enormous contrast that is between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light or the kingdom of God's beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Redemption means uh, the, the act of buying back. So God has purchased us back. He's purchased us with the blood of Christ. He has purchased us out of the slave market of sin, given us freedom in Jesus. He has forgiven us word forgive means to let go. God has let go of our sins and holds them against us no longer. And the reason he can do that as a just and holy God is because the punishment for those sins has already been taken upon the Son of God. Freely, Jesus took them upon himself. And he was judged in our place And when we come to know the Lord Jesus and we trust in him, our sins and the penalties that accompany those sins are let go, let go of by God. He no longer holds them against us. So go back up to verse 12. Who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light? Who has qualified you? Let me ask you this morning. Who has qualified you to be a member of the spiritual kingdom of Christ? There's only one right answer to that question. It is God. I grew up in a religion that taught that I had to qualify myself. I had to get myself qualified to go into the kingdom of heaven. And the message of the gospel is the complete opposite. Christ did everything necessary so that God the Father could qualify us freely 
to enter into his kingdom. So if you struggle with self-qualification, thinking that your acceptance before God is dependent upon your spiritual performance, you need to let go of that. You need to rest in the reality that if you know Christ, you are already fully qualified by the Father and you are now a citizen of his kingdom, which is the kingdom of his love. There's a second truth I want you to meditate on this morning, and that is this. Our creator has become our savior, reconciling us, his enemies, to himself. We see this in verses 15 through 23. You may remember this from a number of weeks back, but uh, the Apostle Paul exalts the Lord Jesus Christ as being the image of the invisible God, the highest, uh, the one who, who holds the highest position of honor. And he is the one who created all things, visible, invisible, thrones or dominions, so even the spiritual powers that are now in rebellion against God were created originally by the Son of God. They rebelled against him and they now fight against him and his work and his church. We've all been created by the Son of God. He is before all things, that is, he should have first place, he should have preeminence in our lives because he created us. But even more than that, Paul goes on to say, he should also have first place in our lives, not only because he created us, but because he redeemed us. He purchased us. We now belong to him. As Paul says to the Corinthians, we no longer belong to ourselves, but we now belong to God. And in Christ, verse 19, is the fullness of God. Was pleased to dwell within the the God-man. So Jesus Christ, the God-man, is the fullness of deity, the fullness of God. And it is through him, verse 20, that God reconciled to himself all things. How did he do this? Through our good works? Through our religion? Through our keeping of the law? No. Making peace by the blood of his cross. By the blood of his cross, God made peace with us, his enemies. God didn't need to be reconciled to us. We need to be reconciled to God. We are the ones who have walked away from him. And praise the Lord for his grace. Praise the Lord that his mercy is greater than our sin. We were alienated, verse 21. We were hostile in our minds, doing evil deeds. That's, that's our pre-Christian life. That's, our, that's what we were before we met Jesus. That's the old man. The old man characterized by by alienation and hostility in spirit. But all that has been changed because God has made us to be at peace with himself through the blood of the cross. And now we have a spirit of peace, not hostility. No longer doing evil deeds. That doesn't mean we don't struggle with sin. Paul talks about that in Romans 6 and 7. 
There is a continued struggle, but the dominant feature of our lives no longer is characterized by bondage to sin. We now are, in, we now are free. We are now free to obey God, able to follow him because of the Holy Spirit who lives within us and the new life that he began in us. It is God who reconciled us to himself. Why did he do this, verse 22? To transform us. God did not save us merely so that we would go to heaven when we die. That's the end result of the work that he began in us. He saved us to transform us from the inside out, to remake us into the image of his glorious son. In order to present you holy, verse 22 says, and blameless and above reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith, words continuing in the faith, surrounded, uh, surrounding yourself with the truth of the gospel, walking stable and steadfast in the hope of Christ, not shifting, verse 23, not shifting from the hope of the gospel, and he'll deal with this more in chapter two in the ways that, that the Colossians were being deceived by the devil to, to diminish Christ and to shift to man-made traditions, man-made philosophies, instead of finding their peace and security in Christ and in Christ alone. And this has been proclaimed in all creation. So our creator has become our savior. Isn't that breathtaking? In its reality, our creator that we rebelled against. I mean, when Adam and Eve, when our first parents rebelled against God, God was under no obligation whatsoever to, to chase them down, to pursue them with his mercy. He could have judged them fully, completely, in all righteousness and justice and started over. But he didn't. Instead, he began a plan of redemption, a way to redeem sinners. And it all takes place because of Christ. There's a third truth I want you to meditate on this morning. God has entrusted his saving word to us, enlisting us to make the gospel known and to disciple believers to maturity. This is the stewardship we talked about last Sunday, where in verse 24, the apostle says, I rejoice in my sufferings, not because suffering was fun. He rejoiced in his sufferings because he knew that in and through and underneath and behind his suffering, God was up to something good. Not only for his sanctification to make him more like Christ, but God was also working to spread the gospel through Paul and through his sufferings. And so God has entrusted his saving word to us. We are stewards. Paul says in verse 25, we have this stewardship from God and, and this stewardship revolves around Christ, but it's connected to the word of God. So the written word glorifies the living word. 
God has enlisted us to make the gospel known. God doesn't need us. He has no needs. But he has chosen, because he is a personal God, he has chosen that the pathway by which people hear the good news of the gospel is through persons. And so God, a personal God, reaches persons who need salvation through other persons who bring the gospel with them. So we are bearers of the good news. But it's more than that. It's not just uh, preaching the gospel so that then people come to a place of making a decision for the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't just then leave them hanging. We are to then work alongside the Holy Spirit to help to bring them to maturity in Christ, verse 28. That's what Paul did. And we've, we've talked about this numerous times, but verses six and seven, which we'll get to uh, eventually, um, that we are to walk with the Lord in the same way that we received the Lord, which is by faith. And that means that we need to be rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. So when God uses you or uses me to be a part of the process of bringing a person to faith in Christ, our, our work has only really just begun. You know, some of us are, are those who plant the seed, some of us are those who water the seed, and some of us are those who get to see the harvest. But wherever you are in that process, there is this responsibility that we have to nurture and strengthen the newborn believers. We don't just bring a newborn into the world and then leave them stranded to fend for themselves. And that's one of the reasons that God is displaying his brilliance through the local church. That we are a disciple-making body of Christ, helping one another to grow in Christ and mature in him. These are spiritual riches that glorify the Lord Jesus, but by faith in him, we are brought to be in union with him, and now we begin to see these are riches that belong to us. These are reasons to give thanks to God. Does this fill your heart with thanksgiving to prepare your heart for the Lord's table? Let's turn now to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 because as we shift our attention now more directly to the Lord's ordinance of the table or what some people call communion or the Lord's supper, uh, we want to turn our attention to a really important uh, portion of scripture whereby we see the seriousness uh, by which we should approach the Lord's table. It's not just something that we casually do. It's not something that is a part of our ritual, so to speak, but this is something that we want to always take seriously. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17. But, 
in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Obviously, that first word is a word of contrast. He's been dealing with theological and practical errors throughout the first 10 chapters, uh, really 10 and a half chapters of uh, this book. And now he's come to chapter 11. He's trying to straighten out some things in the church whereby male and female roles in the church were getting reversed. And so he deals with that. And then he says, I got to deal with something that's really tough here and I can't commend you. Instead, the Holy Spirit wants me to correct you. I don't commend you because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. In other words, when you come together for what was called the love feast, which was the Lord's table, the Lord's supper, it was, it was part of, what we celebrate this morning was part of a larger feast that they, uh, they spent time together uh, fellowshipping and reflecting upon Christ. But there was a great deal of division in the church. In fact, at the very beginning of the book, he deals with that. He confronts them because some of, uh, some of the people were saying, well, Paul's my favorite preacher. No, 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 no. I like Peter. No, I, I like Apollos. He, he's the best. And then there were the super spiritual ones who says, oh, I only follow Jesus. You know, um, And Paul says, that should not be among you because there's unity in Christ. There's unity among all those who are genuinely believers in the Lord Jesus. And yet there is a sense in which God then uses those divisions, he says in verse 18. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So the apostle strongly rebukes the Corinthian church for exalting themselves instead of exalting Christ. Uh, there, was, uh, there were divisions among them, he says. There was self-satisfaction, a, a satisfying of the flesh at the expense of other believers. There was contempt for others. In chapter 6, he, he confronts believers who were taking other believers to court, suing them. Great deal of contempt. And so he even challenges the genuineness of their profession of faith in verse 19. This is where uh, historically uh, churches have, have come to an understanding of of how to practice the Lord's table, which we refer to around here as fencing the table. Historically, it began in Scotland. It's been a part of the the history of the EFCA uh, from from the beginning. And the, the point is that we seek to follow the apostles' attempt here to guard the Lord's table, to guard the communion table. The Lord's table is only for believers in Jesus Christ. 
That's, that's the way it's presented in, in the New Testament. Those who have experienced conversion, those who have turned away from their sin to the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord's table is for those who are seeking to glorify Christ by pursuing reconciliation with others, not approaching communion while there is hostility in your heart toward other believers. So we should never approach the table of the Lord without examining ourselves. Uh, He goes on in, in verse 27, you'll just skip over the actual ordinance part, but verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. In other words, don't come to communion casually, flippantly, without examining your own heart and your relationships with other believers. Let a person examine himself, verse 28. Then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have even died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. So apparently there are other questions that the Corinthians had for the apostle, and he said, I'll deal with those when I, when I arrive. But here, this love feast had turned into a divisive, gluttonous feast, and a displaying of the flesh. And Paul says, that's not what this is about. This is about the Lord. This is about glorifying Christ. So examine yourselves. Well, how do we examine ourselves before we approach the Lord's table? Well, we should ask ourselves, am I saved? Do I know Jesus? Do I see growing evidence of the Holy Spirit's fruit in my life? The fruit that is described in Galatians 5. Do I have broken relationships that that I'm pretty much content to just leave that way? Or am I praying and working as much as I am able to pursue reconciliation? Even if you aren't suing another Christian in court, let me ask you this, have you taken another believer to court in your heart? Ask yourself, am am I harboring secret sin that I need to confess to God and perhaps to others and ask for their help to getting free from that? The Holy Spirit has hundreds of ways that he uses his word in our lives every Sunday morning. And so I don't know specifically how he is speaking to your heart this morning. And how he wants you to examine yourself and prepare for the Lord's table.
But let's do that together. Let's just bow our heads and have a time of silent prayer. Um, Confess sin. Thank the Lord for rescuing you. Thank Jesus for his cleansing blood. Thank uh, the Spirit for the transforming work that he is doing within you. And, And ask the Lord to renew Uh, your consecration, the consecration of your heart, the dedication of your heart to follow Christ with everything in you.